then they had these letters from Paul that they would read out. In this case, a guy named Tychicus would come, and he would read out. He was Paul's messenger, and he would read it to the church in Ephesus, this small group of people. In this church, in this house, was a group of believers who were made up of slaves, slaveholders, people who were abandoned, people who were outcasts, people who were probably ex-cons, those who were not wanted or accepted or thrown out. They would all be crammed together in this small little church room. So we would have millionaires next to homeless people, ex-cons probably next to a cop. There would be uh, just this mix, this diversity of people who felt various things uh, throughout society. Those people who didn't measure up with this perfection of Greek culture and those people who thought they fit everything with Greek culture. And they would hear Paul's words together. The church was made up of this variety of people in this congregation. Slaves, slaveholders, everyone from powerful to not powerful, all huddled together reading this or having this letter read to them. And it would start and it would go all the way through all six, well, we call them six chapters, but he would open the scroll and start and then end, and they would hear it, and then they would talk about it, and then this letter would be passed on to another church down the road a little bit, and they would trade letters to learn from Paul and learn, learn a little bit of theology. Each one of these people that were listening would have a past. They would have something that they were ashamed of. And so Paul, if you were here last week, Richard talked a little bit about this, But in the first chapter, Paul goes through, and Paul is combating something that's popular in this culture. He's going through, and and in chapter 1, he says the phrase, in Christ, 14 times. He says the phrase, in him, 9 times. And then he refers to God another 9 times. And, And we pass over this, but what Paul was doing was saying, all of you people who are gathered here aren't brought here by what they thought would have been Artemis. Artemis was the god of Ephesus. In fact, Paul says, in Christ we come together because of God, in him. And so Paul is being very specific, and he's flipping the script uh, on what they would have thought to be the cause that brings them together. Artemis was their God. This is a picture of her temple in Ephesus, just to get some. That was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Not like that. It was probably better. This is where Paul starts the riot in Acts 16. And this next one is Artemis. There she is. She's a looker. She is the goddess of hunting and fertility. So, the, and she's, uh, they, she gave this perfection ideal that people would try and meet. So that's Artemis. This is who Paul is flipping the script on. They would say, we gather because of her. We are here because of her, by her power, by her might. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. 14 times, nine times. No, it is Christ. It is God that brings us together. It is God who defines us not our culture. It is God who defines us, not our friends. It is God who defines us, not what we think else defines us. Paul is trying to get them back to their truest identity. And so in chapter one, he says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, over and over again. If you're looking for a devotional, go through and circle every time God or Christ is referenced in chapter one. There will be a lot of them. So Paul says this. This is how he gets going. He says, in Christ you are this. And what what we find as he turns the page into our chapter 2 of Ephesians is Paul is saying, you are here because of Christ, and now let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you more about yourself. Paul addresses three aspects of of our personalities. Our past, what we were, 
our present, what we are, and then he gives us a future of what we will be. When we read this, keep in mind who Paul is talking to. People who didn't think that they had a, a future. People who were defined by their mistakes or defined by other people doing other senseless acts to them. So Paul says this, as for you, which is a big one, the first one was all about God, Christ. Now Paul's talking about us. So as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. When Paul says the kingdom of the air, he's talking about Satan. He's talking about the evil one. Uh, So you were this, the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature just deserving of wrath. The first chapter, all about God, all about Christ. The next one, as for you. Now, when you look at this uh, passage, notice with me uh, quickly for you English uh, majors, grammar, look at the tense that Paul uses. Specifically, he's talking about what we used to be. As for you, you were. You were dead. You used to be, uh, uh, you used to live by this. You were by nature. All of this stuff is past tense, right? Am I looking at that correctly, English grammar people? Yeah? Okay, good. She's the one that corrects our grammar on the slides and emails. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but, But he's saying you used to be deserving of God's wrath. This is a former position. Paul's intentions here in these verses is to encourage the church of Ephesus to allow this newfound freedom of Christ to take shape in their lives. What they were used to be uh, living like is always in fear of the wrath of God. Always in fear that this God was going to come get them. But Paul says, that's who you used to be. That's not you anymore. That's a past tense. Fear is a great motivate, is a great, is motivating, but it's a terrible, terrible motivator. Eventually, when you fear something, it ends up stunting your growth. Fear might change you for a little bit, but it'll never change you the way you live. And for these people, they were defined by fear. Fear will change you for maybe a month, maybe a week or two, and then you get tired, and then you go back to doing what you normally would do anyways. Fear never changes your behavior. And for the Ephesian people, whose thoughts about God were all based in Greek mythology... They thought that God was like Zeus coming at them with a lightning bolt. When they stepped out of line, he was going to chuck it at them. That's not who Paul paints our God like. He says, that was who you were. That's not who you are now. God is not this, someone, this something to be afraid of. And frankly, I think we as a church have fallen into that same thing that as a church wide, not just here, but in most churches, we fall into the same thing where we see God as someone to be fearful of, as someone who's constantly mad at us. And we've allowed this false view of an angry God to infiltrate our thinking. Then our life with Christ becomes more of a fear, more of avoiding an angry God than actually living the life that God wants us to live. I remember growing up, I was playing in the front yard and we were playing tackle football and I was still the smallest, so I was the one getting hurt most. And I was the youngest, which made it even more fun to hurt me. I still am the youngest. Uh, but they, my friend John, who lived one, st- one house over, 
was sitting there, and he had a, uh, an ACDC shirt. Uh, it was Highway to Hell. I don't know how a 12-year-old is wearing that shirt at that time, but it's a great album. But at that time, I'm like eight, and I look up at this shirt, and it's a depiction of hell. And I look at it, and I'm thinking, man, I'm getting tackled a lot. I, mean, I might die. And, and so I looked at his shirt and goes, I, I don't want to go there. It scared me. So I run inside. I find mom and dad, and on that ugly brown carpet and, and the coffee table, I say to dad, dad, I don't want to go to that place on John's shirt. And uh, dad and mom sat me down. They led me through the prayer. And, and that night I got saved. My dad said that I got the hell scared out of me because I saw hell and didn't want to be there anymore. And so, but, but I, what brought me to that point was fear. And it's true, you accept Christ, so you know, the, the heaven and hell thing, hell, heaven and they're real. And so, and that brought me to the point of making a decision. But if I lived my life in constant fear of going to hell, what kind of life is that? Fear was a great motivator to get me to a point where I made a decision. But it's not something where you base your life on. It wasn't until high school where I realized, or the senior year in high school going into college, where I realized that there's more of a relationship. I'm just not supposed to walk around with fear. And this is what Paul is saying. We have nothing to fear anymore. Our God is not stingy. Our God is not the uh, grumpy old man in the corner you never want to disturb. He's not the one who's out trying to get us and squish our dreams. That's a bad picture of God. Paul says that's where we were, meaning that's not who we are anymore. We're not objects of God's wrath. And then he says in verse 4, but because of his great love, we were objects of wrath, which he says in the end of verse 3. But in verse 4, it's a big but, because it's important. But, you'll get that, it's a slow burn. But, there it is. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, mercy, not wrath, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul wants the Ephesian people and us to realize that we are loved and there's nothing that anyone or any, anything can do to remove that from you. You were objects of wrath, but God in his great love. In Ephesians, in the previous chapter, he says this in verses five through eight, in love he predestined us for adoption to be sons and daughters of Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will of his glorious grace that he has given the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, with accordance to the riches of God's grace he lavished on us. Does it sound like God is mad there? He continues, to the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. Do you see what Paul's doing here? God's not angry. He loves to do this for you. Out of love, he was motivated. Out of the abundance of his riches and grace, you no longer have to live in fear. First John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We have nothing 
to be afraid of. Paul's saying, as, as children adopted into the family of Christ, we have nothing to fear because fear has to do with punishment from sin and that's who we used to be, which was the past. Now there is more mercy found in Christ than there is sin found in you. So why do we think that God is angry with us? He's not. He wants to love. We shouldn't be motivated by fear of fear of wrath. Paul says, this is who you are. Now, in the next part, he says, this is where we are. Now we are. Paul says, we were under wrath. And now look and see where we are. Verse 6. And God raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. There are a lot of prepositions. In order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's quite a place to be. Did you catch where you are? You are in Christ, seated with him. The fear is gone, and your present tense is next to Jesus. Paul says, this is your current address. You're at the right hand. You're seated there. He doesn't put mistakes next to Jesus. You are the objects of grace and kindness. This is who you are. You're no longer a screw-up. You're no longer an object of wrath. He says it this way to the Colossians. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You were this. Now when, when Jesus he comes, we are hidden with Christ in God. Think of Tupperware. You know how Tupperware is great, and you can put small Tupperware in larger Tupperware? This is what it is. Imagine you're the small piece of Tupperware, and you get put into the larger piece of Tupperware that's a different color, and you can't see the smaller piece of Tupperware anymore. Are you tracking? And it's sealed up. So when you look at the large piece of Tupperware and you're looking for the small one, you don't see the small one, and then you get mad and start looking for it everywhere else. But if you were to open it up, you would find it. When God sees us, he sees the larger piece of Tupperware instead of seeing the smaller piece. We are hidden with Christ next to Jesus. That's our present address in God. So we are swallowed up. Everything about us is swallowed up. And all that God sees is Jesus. But what's the thing that keeps you in fear? And what's the thing that keeps us always in constant hiding? In Genesis chapter 3, what, why did they hide? Shame. Shame will keep you in fear. Shame keeps you from enjoying your present tense. Shame keeps you from enjoying where God has placed you. And many of our lives is, is, are, are, are defined by shame. I thought of this a few weeks ago. We just finished moving, my, my family and I, and we moved up to northeast Seattle. And we're moving there. And the, the time that we're moving, uh, we, we got the keys on the first and then we moved in like on the 5th or 6th. Some of you were there to help us. Thank you so much. Uh, but as those, those four days of, of not being there, we're full of painting, moving over some boxes, organizing, planning. And it was this time of tension. Right? We would go there. We would take Judah. And we got this place because it has a killer yard. And Judah, my two-and-a-half-year-old, would be running out in the backyard. And Carrie and I would just be working inside. And then when it got to be uh, time to go home or eat dinner, 
we would go back to our old place that was full of boxes and a complete mess, and then we would sleep just to get up and go work again. One time we come home, and Judah walks in, and he knows a few phrases, and he stops, and he's looking around, goes, he calls Carrie mom-mom, and he goes, mom-mom, what a mess. Oh, and we're like, yeah, buddy, it's a mess. It's, it's, it's full of boxes and loose pieces of paper and ink pens that we've been looking for for months, and everything is just everywhere, and it's a mess. But really... That kind of pictures what our life is. We have this perfect, we have this place where we're seated with Christ. Everything about us is sealed and perfect. We're defined by good. God loves us, wants to give us all of this grace and mercy. But then in the dark places of our hearts is this old address where we go back to. We define ourselves by our shame and becomes a mess. Yes, we have something good over here, but our shame keeps us locked away and living a life that that is shameful. Shame reminds you of the old way where you used to think that you're worthless and unlovable. Shame sets us off into, into trying to earn people's respect, earn people's grace. We say that we will do anything in order for people to love us. We will do anything in order for people to accept us. We will do anything in order for God to love and accept us. When he already does, we turn into humans doing things rather than humans being the people that we should be. We turn into trying to earn and earn and earn. And many of us, we let shame force us to reside at the old address. Shame and guilt are two different things. Sometimes we think we just feel guilty for the things that we have done. Guilt is different. Guilt says you've made a mistake. And we all should feel guilty about some of the mistakes that we've made. Shame says you are a mistake. There's a difference. It's a big one. Shame should not be our motivating factor because we are not mistakes. We might have made mistakes, but we are not. So... Imagine Paul's audience sitting here. There are people there who are feeling very shameful about what they have done or what they're doing. And Paul comes along and says, you are seated at the right hand of God. All the people who don't match up to the ideal, all the people who say I'll never fit in, all the people who are full of shame, now hear this and say that God did not make a mistake with them. Paul says, you're not a mistake. Mistakes don't have the address of sitting next to Jesus at the right hand of God. There's no mistake with you. And the mistakes that you've made along the way, they're gone. And there's nothing that you can do to bring them back. You are not your family's dysfunction. You are not your body image. You are not the mistake that you made. You might have made them, but that's not who you are. Shame says that's who you are, and we start to try and earn things. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Jacob and then his two wives, Leah and Rachel. Uh, he, he works for seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage in Genesis 29. And then uh, Laban, his father-in-law, pulls a trick on him. And he ends up marrying Leah instead of Rachel. I don't know how he did that. It just it happened that way. I don't know how you make that mistake. But he gets there. He works seven years and he's supposed to marry Rachel and then Leah he marries Leah, and then he goes back to his father-in-law and goes, hey, what, why'd you do that? 
And then his father-in-law gives him some reason. And Jacob, who was a swindler, got swindled. And now he works for another seven years to marry Rachel. Meanwhile, Leah is his wife. Put yourself in Leah's shoes. You're married to a guy who doesn't want to be married to you. He wants your sister. And the only reason we see in Scripture in the text is because she, Jacob didn't like her eyes. So Leah starts to think that she's a mistake. In Genesis 29, verse 32, Leah tries to earn Jacob's approval and says, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. And look at this. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely now my husband will love me. Okay? It didn't work. Look again. Verse 33, she conceived again. And she gave birth to a son. She said, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this son. So she named him Simeon. So the first one didn't work. The second one, well, didn't work again. Verse 34, and she conceived, and she gave birth to a son. And she says, now at least, at last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And she named him Levi. Leah was stuck trying to do things to get someone's approval. She was living her life of shame. She feels like she's a mistake. She's trying to make up for it. So maybe if she keeps having sons, maybe her husband will love her. Then in verse 35, she conceived again. And she gave birth to a son. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. It's a good name. Then she stopped having children. She stopped doing. This is how I would take it. She stopped trying to do things to get Jacob to love her. She said, no, I am loved. So this time, I'm going to praise the Lord. This time, I'm not going to do things to try and earn someone's affection. I am loved already. I don't need to hide in shame. So she names him Judah. Judah is the tribe which David comes from, which Christ comes from. And you start seeing a line formed right there. When we see how much we're loved by our God, it changes everything about us. We don't have to define ourselves by our mistake. And we don't have to look at our future as if we're doomed. And the great thing is, and here's what Paul's getting at, there's no way that we can earn this approval. You can do and do and do and do and do, and you won't get it. Look what he says in verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to to do good things. You might have screwed up, but Paul says you're not a screw up. You might have failed, but you're not a failure. God's grace means that everything is covered and that changes everything about our lives. When I feel shame, when I feel like I've done something wrong, I try, I go into, we call it the shame cave, where I start looking inward and my brain starts to think, what can I do to make this person happy with me now? Usually it's Carrie, because I feel like I make her mad all the time. I don't. Uh, I just have this shameful persona where I'm trying to earn approval somehow. And she'll look at me and go, stop it. I'm fine. Leave me alone. We're fine. But if you keep doing this, we won't be. 
And so I, I, but I try, I mean, my shame tries to make me perform to get someone's approval. Try, I, I try to do things to make people like me. I try and be the funny person, even though that doesn't work. I try and be the smart person, which doesn't work even more. And, and so we try and go, and I try and try and try and try to earn something that shame tells me I have to earn. Paul says, there's nothing to earn here. You were objects of God's wrath. Now look where you are. You're seated next to Christ, and there's nothing you can do to earn that. Your new address is next to his. And so God's grace changes your address, and you move from shame into life. And then Paul calls us masterpieces. But we thought we were shameful. Paul says, you're not shameful. You're a masterpiece. Masterpieces define the artist. We are works of art where every brushstroke is planned and perfected. We bear the signature of God on our hearts. Masterpieces define the artist. We are representations of God himself. Or as one author said it, we are representing God which, by the way we live. We were fearful, now we, and, but now we shouldn't be anymore. We are more than our mistakes. And then Paul says, we are, we, or we will be, we have a future. When there's no fear to control you, when there's no shame to hide you, we finally have the ability to live the life that God has planned for us all along. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We like to quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. We like to quote those, that one. But Ephesians 2.10 makes Ephesians 2.8 and 9 make more sense. You've been saved by grace. Can't do anything. Your shame, your mistakes, the fear is gone. Now what is the question? Well, good thing there's verse 10. For you are God's workmanship, created to do good things. We have a past, we have a present, and now we have a future. And because of this, we can move forward with confidence in the midst of our uncertainty. When you think of your future, what happens? Kind of get scared, right? It's the thing we don't know. We don't know where we'll be tomorrow. Well, some of you might be barbecuing. That's great. But we don't know where we'll be five years from now. It's uncertain. And so we're fearful. But Paul says there's no reason to be afraid here. Your fear is gone. There's nothing to fear. You're wrapped in perfect love. There's no shame. Everything's been hidden. Now, live. God has prepared in front of you good things to do. You have a calling. We like to mystify this calling, and we've talked about it before, where we sit around and we think about this large, illuminated neon sign to come down and say, this is where you're supposed to be. That's not what we, that's not what we see when it comes to calling here. Paul says you're gifted, you're loved, Now go on living your life because it's a good thing for you to do. Your calling is right where you are. You're called to that moment in that place. So what's that mean? It means that uh, that when you parent, you're doing good works as being a parent. It means that you're doing good works as being an engineer. 
It means that you're doing good works about being in sales, about being a lawyer, about being in the service industry, about being in the medical field, about being retired. These are the good works that God's prepared in advance for you to do. Now all you do is step into it and expect to be used in that place. God has prepared you and gifted you to do those good works. And when we live in fear, when we hide in shame, we'll never live into what God has already called us to do. What Paul is telling them is that your fear is gone, your shame is lifted. Now live the life that God has, want, has made for you to live. The good works are already put in front of you. Now it's easy to hear this, and this is how I, I, I interpret it. It's easy to hear this and go, you know who needs to hear this is Frank. Frank needs to hear this. He's the one who's shameful. He's the one who's hiding. He's not, yeah, and they're not here today. They need to hear this. I'm going to give them the podcast. No, 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 no. You need to hear this today. You are not a mistake. There's nothing to be afraid of with God. There's nothing you could do to make him love you less. And the life you have now is a life to do good things in God's name where you find your feet planted. You have a job to do. You have a calling to fulfill. Don't imagine for a minute that any of these people in this room heard this and went, oh, it's for so-and-so. When they heard this letter from Paul, they're thinking to themselves, I'm not a mistake. We have a life to live. Your identity is secure. God, who is rich in his mercy, has created us for more. And he called us to a life that is rid of those things that hold us back and to get us to work for him doing the things that he's already enabled us to do. Live at your address. Stop living in the old places. Start residing in the new places where God has given you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to give us a future and a hope that you've called us, that you've prepared things for us, and you give us a choice whether we're going to participate or not. Lord, help our lives to not be marked by shame and fear any longer. Lord, help us to be defined by your perfect love that casts out that fear. Lord, help us not to be in fear that we're going to make you so mad that you won't love us anymore. That's not how you work. Lord, help us to live into our, uh, our future, excited to see how you will use us in our next steps, wherever they may be. For you are rich in mercy, and your kindness overflows. In Jesus' name.